0: Welcome to the home of Running Port Evil. My name is Steve DeBoard. I'm the host of this true crime podcast, this podcast is made for those two crime aficionados who relish digging into the psyche of violent criminals, weird criminals, and deviant criminal actions. This podcast is not for the faint of heart. These stories will be presented as if I had gone to the crime scene myself as the investigator that I once was, and I'll be giving insights into each investigation to try to fill in the gap so you can understand the intricacies of each investigation. I've asked the question before, why do we... Enjoy listening to true crime podcasts. Well, part of the reason is because of storytelling. Storytelling actually goes back a good 50,000 years. Now, a lot of the various tribes had no written language at all. The only way that they could communicate what had happened in their own history is by using pictures and the spoken word. Stories satiate our inquisitive minds about our own history, and about the history of those around us. And we want to know how our personal family history has affected us, but we also want to know things that go on around us. Time is a precious commodity. Thus, there are times when it's far more convenient to relax and listen, or listen while on the go. This podcast, Running Toward Evil, soon to be your favorite podcast, and storytelling medium will do just that. Crime is not an easy thing to talk about, So many people have been affected by it and suffer shocking mental, physical, and psychological after-effects. One way, I've learned through experience, is to bring it out in the open, talk about it, and discuss it with people who have also been affected by similar incidents. To be clear, running toward evil is not a mental health cathartic event. It is about stories that happen to affect people of all ages, races, and ethnicities. Crimes are hard to hide. Crime should be exposed, and the best way to do that is to create an army of citizen sleuths to get out the word and not let victims feel alone. Citizen sleuths are a very important crime-fighting asset and should not be pushed aside. I can tell you, as a former homicide detective, the reports and information from citizens was a very valuable resource. I look forward to discussing these and other cases of unsolved murders, mysteries, and finding the who, what, when, where, why, and how of criminal behaviors and actions. I have found in my many years in law enforcement, people become aggravated during investigations because they don't believe the police are being transparent with what they are doing with the investigation. Let me give you an example of an investigation I worked on. Alice Vaughn had been murdered in her home and during the investigation, many leads and many people were considered persons of interest in this case. The family was from out of town, and I wanted to have answers about what happened to their loved one. I felt I was working on the case for the family, but I held back a lot of information regarding the steps the investigative process took to, well, in my mind, protect the integrity of the investigation and the information I had discovered. Now, that didn't work very well with the family. One day I'm sitting at my desk. The chief of detectives calls me and tells me to come over to his office. That's like getting a call from the principal when you're in high school. He gave me a list of 85 questions that the family had put together to determine what I was doing, the process I was using, and what I had found out. Now, I couldn't answer very well all of those questions, but I was forced to by the chief because he wanted the family to be more informed than I thought they should be. So what I did was to take the questionnaire, take it back to my office, And answer all the questions, whether I could answer it, and if I could answer it, answer it to the best of my ability. I learned a big lesson at that time about being more transparent with the family. Now, as a side note here, let me explain the culture of police investigations and the thinking of detectives about sharing information with anyone, including family members. By keeping information close to the vest being secretive about the process and the information received, only the suspect and the police would be familiar with these items. Say, for instance, a telephone cord was pulled out of the wall to strangle the victim, then they were struck with a golf club. That's the kind of information I'm talking about. These are important pieces of information and evidence that corroborate a statement of a suspect to the crime in their statement. It's just simply a means to verify it simply means a verification that would hold up in court by not sharing it or tainting the investigation. And this is my caveat. It is the culture of most law enforcement agencies to withhold even procedural tasks and how the investigation would have been conducted. This is the very reason I'm conflicted about the case that I'm presenting to you today. On one hand, homicide investigations are so important that the police want to withhold 99% of the information they gather. On the other hand, the family not only wants to know how the investigation is being conducted, but need to know. Did I withhold information I could have released to the family? Yes, I did. I've since become somewhat of an advocate that some of the processes should be shared, which could lead to more people becoming involved. I mean, who wouldn't want to have more eyes and ears on the street looking for a killer? Let me give you an example. If a red SUV with a dent in the passenger door was seen in the area at the time of a crime, it should be shared. If it was a red SUV with a dent in the passenger door and had a specific sticker in the back window, I believe that should be shared also. It could be easily identified by somebody who may know the driver of this suspicious vehicle. We'll go into further detail about this as we talk about the Christopher Reese murder in Notice, Ohio. This episode is about the tragic death of Christopher Reese in December of 2014 in Notice, Ohio, and that's N-O-T-U-S, Idaho. The small town of Notice, Idaho was shaken to its core on December 14th when Christopher Reese, Reese, a beloved convenience store clerk, lost his life in a violent and tragic incident. Christopher's death occurred during a brazen armed robbery at the convenience store where he worked. Despite the best efforts of the Kenyon County Sheriff's Department, the case remains unsolved and the perpetrators continue to evade justice. This episode delves into the details of the crime, the investigation that followed, and the challenges faced by law enforcement in solving this case. On the fateful night of December 12, 2014, Christopher Reese was working the late shift at the Notice Convenience Store. It was a quiet evening until two armed men entered the store their faces concealed by masks or other coverings, their suspects demanded money from the cash register and threatened violence. Christopher, who was known for his calm demeanor and dedication to his job, attempted to comply with their demands. However, in the chaos that ensued, a gunshot rang out, fatally wounding him. The two assailants fled the scene immediately, leaving behind a shocked and traumatized community. First responders rushed to the scene, but despite their best efforts, Christopher Reese succumbed to his injuries, the incident left the town in mourning and a law enforcement with a complex case to solve. The Canyon County Sheriff's Department initiated a thorough investigation into the murder of Christopher Reese. They interviewed witnesses, collected evidence at the crime scene, and analyzed surveillance footage. However, the case quickly encountered several challenges. The first challenge was a lack of clear identification. The suspects had their faces covered making it difficult to identify them from witness descriptions or surveillance footage. This obstacle hindered the progress of the investigation from the outset. Number two is that there was limited physical evidence. The crime scene didn't yield a substantial amount of physical evidence that could lead to the identification of the suspects. Fingerprints and DNA evidence were either absent or insufficient. Limited leads, despite the efforts of investigators, leads in the case were scarce the motive behind the robbery and the identity of the suspects remained elusive. Now, that's just a brief overview of what happened that night. I want to go into more detail, so I'm going to be covering some of these facts again. But we're going to be taking them a little bit in more detail, and then we're going to talk about these deep details. And if I were investigating this homicide, what I would have done and what I would have been looking at in this murder case— On December 17, 2014, Christopher Reese, 25 years old, had recently moved to Notice, Idaho and was working the overnight shift at the Jackson's Food Store, a gas convenience type of store. He and his girlfriend had moved to Parham near Notice four years earlier to be closer to her family along with their daughter. It made them far more convenient to be near family who would help with taking care of their small daughter. It's great to have somebody close to you during the difficult times as well as the good times. In many cases, these gas stations with small convenience stores has one person working in the overnight shift. Not only is this true in Idaho, but it's also true across the country. Many times during my career as a police officer, I would stop in the convenience stores overnight to check on the clerks because I knew they were alone and were highly susceptible to being robbed and injured, if not killed, under these circumstances. Jackson's food and notice was in the country near Highway 20, a major artery for travel throughout that area. Notice itself is a small town with a population of about 610 people, according to the 2022 census. Notice is one of eight cities in Canyon County in the state of Idaho. It is considered the smallest town in Canyon County due to its size and population. It is located five miles west of Caldwell on in Interstate 84 at Exit 26. It is eight miles east of Parma, where the uh, victim and his family lived on Highway 2026. The Union Pacific Railroad runs east to west through notice between Highway 20 and 26, just north and the Boise River just south. The city business district runs along the north side of the highway, the length of the city limits. Across the tracks is agricultural industry with a few homes. North of the business district are single family homes of architectural designs dating back to 1904. The medium home price in notice is around $180,000. Why is this all important, these details about where the river was, where the railroad was, uh, the highways? Well, it's because people who rob stores and commit crimes want to be able to get away fast with little to no identification and little to no police presence. That's why small towns are picked. This was in the perfect location. Notice provides a less congested lifestyle in this quiet rural town that is a short drive into the country. Close by is the city of Nampa, Idaho and Boise, Idaho. A large silver-colored sphere water tower stands high above a park and can be seen from a distance. Surrounding the city are rich fields of tree groves, of seed crops, onions, potatoes, corn, alfalfa, and sugar beets. A farm community, as it were, and a patchwork quilt of farmland is carved in the landscape, which creates a colorful array of texture and design. Sheep and cattle dot the green pastures and occasional horses and haystacks. Really does sound like a great place to settle down and to live, doesn't it? However, living in a highly rural small town can unintentionally beckon criminal elements due to the very nature that makes people want to live in a small rural town. The Treasure Valley is a valley in the western United States, primarily in southwestern Idaho, where the Payette, Boise, Weiser, Malhauer, Oihee, and Burt Rivers drain into the Snake River. It includes all the lowland areas from Vale in rural eastern Oregon to Boise, and it's the most populated area in Idaho. Again, these details are important for the fact that if you want to trace where criminals went after this type of a crime, you need to know your area. The police officers need to know these things to be able to follow any kind of tracking devices such as cameras, credit cards that may have been used, uh, anything like that to be able to know where they went and the best way they could have possibly have gone once they left the store. Now, historically, the valley has been known as the low, Lower Snake River Valley or the Boise River Valley. Pete Olison, president of the Valley's Association of the Local Chambers of Commerce, coined the name Treasure Valley in 1959 to reflect the treasure chest of resources and opportunities that the region offered. The valley has a very diverse terrain from sage flatlands to mesas, agricultural areas, and urbanized areas. As the Boise metropolitan area grows, more and more undeveloped and agricultural land is being urbanized. Now here's a problem in my research that I found with this area of southern Idaho. There have been 21 unsolved murders in this area since April of 1980 through June of 2017. This includes Canyon County, where Christopher Reese was murdered. It's entirely possible one or two of these unsolved cases may have been solved since these figures were published in 2022. Well, so much for the geography lesson. Let's get back to Christopher Reese's murder. As he was working, two males charged into the store with weapons and a handcart to move something heavy out of the store. The police were able to give decent descriptions due to the interior camera system. The first male looked to be about five ten or taller, wearing a green camouflage jacket, gloves, and light-colored pants. He was wearing combat-style boots and carrying a long AR-type rifle, some type of a device at the end of the barrel of that rifle. It just looked very unusual, something that should have caught the eye of an investigator. The second, what appeared to be male, was wearing a black hooded sweatshirt, gloves, and blue jeans. He was also wearing combat style boots and carrying a handgun and pushing in a hand cart. During the assault, Christopher Reese became the ultimate victim of violence and was shot. He apparently died before the police arrived. I'll go more into depth into some of the details a little later again. Sometime after the robbery murder, the police found a 2007 black Lincoln MKZ used to transport the store safe. And I got to tell you that in my research, I came across some news items and some other media items, meaning the newspaper and, and television news, that said that the suspects left in the victim's car, but yet another paper said that the car that was found had been reported stolen. That makes me wonder, was it the victim's car or was it a car that they had stolen prior to getting to the scene of the robbery murder? Well, shortly after the robbery, the car was found four miles west of the store. Now, what's that tell you? Four miles west of the store. It tells you that this car left In a western direction and if you track the car from the gas station to where it was found you'll have a little bit of an idea of the direction they were going and where they may have been going no arrests have been made jackson's food store has increased the original reward of ten thousand to one hundred thousand dollars for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the suspects the canyon county sheriff's office is the investigating agency and keeps the case in an open status. They state that they have had over 1,000 tips and leads, but they still not have not identified any suspects. I told you before that there's some details that I want to go over, as I stated uh, before. I would pursue in the investigation. In my estimation, there's several issues to investigate. Number one, outside video cameras. Since a store installed an in-store camera system, Could they have also installed an outside camera system? That's a question that's not answered in the media or by the police that my research has shown. Two, how did the police get the alarm or information about the robbery and murder? Did someone walk into the store and see it and report it? Did a silent alarm go off? Did somebody drive by? Number three, how long did it take the police to get to the store once they were notified? Also, how long did it take them to get to the store once the crime had occurred? Were the residences or businesses checked for cameras to follow the suspect's stolen car after it left the store? Another thing I would look at is did it look like another vehicle had been left there for them to have taken? Were they picked up or were or could they have lived in that area? And by that area, I mean where the car was dropped off and they left the car with the safe in the car. It would appear obvious that the suspects may have been in the store before to case it for cameras and the location of the safe. Were former employees or even current employees questioned about this information? Were they questioned about the robbery in any involvement they may or may not have had? The police have not said if any money had been taken from the cash register, why not? One news report stated that cash had not been taken. Was Reese's wallet taken? Did he even have a wallet? And if he had a wallet, was his identification used? Was his credit card used if he had one? Did he have a phone? Did they take his phone? Was it still on the scene? Did they check the phone for past calls, any calls that he had, where his phone had been? And if they took the phone, could they have searched and triangulated the location where the phone was? Bank records. The bank records of... People are always checked, common knowledge that the police will check as many records as they possibly can. It was reported the shell casings were found on the floor. How many were found? What type of shell casings were they? Which weapon were they from? Were they all the same shell casings, or did they come from two different weapons? Now, this sticks in my mind, because when I first saw the one suspect in the green camouflage jacket. Entering into the store through the front door, I noticed the rifle. It looked like some type of an AR rifle, but it looked like there was something on the end of the barrel that was akin to a silencer. I've had a couple of three friends of mine look at the weapon. It's very distinctive and to them it looked like it could have been a, a silencer. Why do I bring that up? Because if you buy a silencer. You must be a certified dealer by the ATF, by the federal government, and they keep track of everyone who buys silencers. If the weapon was an automatic rifle, those are also tracked. Was it a semi-automatic rifle where you have to pull the trigger one time to get it to fire once? So these are things that I would be looking at as an investigator. Have similar crimes been committed within the area or state? Was the National Crime Information Center, or in the police world, we know it as NCIC, notified about the similar crimes committed nationwide? Could Christopher Reese have known who these guys were? What about Reese's background? Is there anything that could or should be shared? Next, I've already shared with you that there have been 21 unsolved murders in the area since 1980. Do any of them have similarities to these suspects? And I'm going to add also that there's been many, many robberies uh, in the areas between Notice and Boise, Idaho. I would like to know if there were similar instances where people had these kind of weapons that went into a fast food store or to a drugstore, a gas station that committed these. It did not look like this is the first time that these two suspects had pulled this kind of a robbery. They seemed very aggressive, very forthwith in going in, getting done what needs to be done, and get out. After seeing the pictures in the media, we could see that one of them had a rifle, one of them had some type of a handgun. The one thing about the rifle that... I noticed and other people who looked at the pictures who are familiar with weapons noticed is that the shooting finger, finger or the trigger finger was held outside of the trigger guard. A lot of unexperienced people would put their finger in the trigger guard and be ready to fire that weapon as soon as they went into the store of putting it instead of putting it on the outside of the trigger guard. Could they have been former military? When the first suspect with the rifle in the store, what was he ready to do? It uh, looked like he had experience. It looked like he had some type of training in dealing with weapons. And it also looked like this may have been something that he had done before. And lastly, was there any criminals recently re- released from jail or prison who had a previous similar MO of these type of crimes? Now, I understand that various police departments in Idaho, especially out in the rural areas, may not have the manpower experience to check everything or that some things need time to complete, but that doesn't mean the public should be kept in the dark about the processes and some of the actions taken. Also understand, I'm not saying the Canyon County Sheriff's Department has not done all of the things I've alluded to, but it would be nice if they would let the public know some more information on their process and on some of their investigation procedures. It's one thing to have a press conference yearly to reflect on the murder and say it is still being investigated, but quite another to identify some of the investigative steps that have been taken. For instance, where was the car that was driven by the suspects taken from? Was it from the victim or was it from another location? These are all very important questions that need to be answered. And I also know that police departments don't like to share any information with other agencies or individuals. This is part of the culture of policing. I called the Canyon County Sheriff's Department and identified myself and why I wanted to talk to the investigator of this crime, but as of this date, I've not received any feedback. My single goal is to provide information and any assistance, not to insert myself into their investigation, not to tell them how to do their investigation, I just know from my years of experience that families want to know what specifically is or has been done during the investigation. My wish for all, including Christopher Reese's family, is during this Christmas season that finally someone will come forward and tell the police what they need to know about the robbery and murder of Christopher Reese thanks for listening to Running Toward Evil today. I hope you will let me know how you like this episode and make any comments you may have. I I want to hear them. The next episode of Running Toward Evil will be on Monday, December the 18th, 2023. Thank you for listening.